Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 92, more on ACO reach and why we need to end it. My guest, Ed Weisbart, MD, explains some basics about ACO reach, why we need to end it, how to end it, why it is a threat to seniors in Medicare, and why we should be optimistic about working to end reach. Dr. Weisbart is a retired family physician, the National Board Secretary of Physicians for our National Health Program, and President of Consumers Council of Missouri. He received his medical degree at the University of Illinois in Chicago in 1979 and completed his family medicine residency and a fellowship in family medicine education at Michigan State University in 1982. Dr. Weisbart was my first podcast guest on Medicare for All Explained, and I am excited to have him back. So Dr. Ed Weisbart, welcome back to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks, Joe. A pleasure to see you, and you're doing great work with these podcasts. Thank you. So today we're discussing ACO REACH, and I don't think many people have heard about it. So could you please tell us what ACO REACH is? Sure. Yeah, ACO REACH is a um, pilot program created within Medicare to test the impact of, frankly, privatizing the rest of traditional Medicare that's not in Medicare Advantage. So ACO REACH uh, started under the Trump administration as a test where instead of Medicare directly paying um, all of the bills for patients, uh, there's now a new organization called a REACH that uh, is paid by Medicare to take care of you, much akin to uh, how Medicare Advantage works with some important differences. But there's this new middleman, and then they pay your doctors instead of Medicare paying your doctors. It's more complicated than that, but that, in essence, they're putting in uh, middlemen instead of paying uh, physicians directly in traditional Medicare. It's an experiment. They're looking at it. They've got uh, 2.1 million people in it today that they've assigned. Medicare has assigned these uh, Medicare beneficiaries into these programs without really fully informing the Medicare beneficiaries and certainly without asking their consent. So if you're in traditional Medicare today, there's a significant chance that without your knowledge necessarily, and certainly without your approval, you've been assigned to one of these. And there's now a, uh, an investment, an investor who's looking to maximize their profits off of your Medicare dollars. I'm confused about one point. So Medicare Advantage is Medicare recipients can sign up to be in a private health insurance plan. Is ACO REACH also a private health insurance plan? Um, not exactly. Uh, there are strong similarities, and that's why we're concerned, but it's not exactly that. Uh, a REACH might be doctors and hospitals that have organized into a group, uh, may not be an insurance company. It might be an insurance company 
any organization just about can become one of these. The key thing is that like Medicare Advantage, you've got somebody in the middle who's trying to make a profit instead of Medicare simply paying your expenses and, and you having control over, over where you go for your health care. The difference is, is what you were alluding to, though, which is that Medicare Advantage is usually something that you as a Medicare member chose to sign up for. Not always, but usually. Uh, so you saw an ad on TV. It's a whole other discussion about how misleading those ads are. But you saw an ad on TV and it sounded really attractive. And so you signed up for it. Um, and so it's usually, not always, but usually your choice to do that. That has... Uh, at this point in the year 2023, has captured roughly 50% of people in Medicare. Roughly 50% of people in Medicare are now in Medicare Advantage, and most of them because they, they chose to. That's a whole other discussion about the risks they're taking without realizing it. We've been focused on how that was the for-profit takeover of Medicare, Medicare Advantage was. And I don't think we'd fully realized until a couple of years ago that the investment community was looking at the other half. <laughs> They were looking at the people in traditional Medicare and saying, well, we want, a, we want a piece of that too. And so they got the Trump administration to create this new outfit, uh, which frankly, President Biden has continued and, and in some ways expanded. Well, in terms of effects for the patients, I'm having a hard time understanding how it would be different from private insurance, because it seems like I'm kind of inferring, but it seems like you would have limited networks. I mean, from a practical standpoint, in the patient's point of view, how would it be different from an Advantage plan? So this is much more sort of inside the engine. It's quite a bit different from Medicare Advantage. In that Medicare Advantage, you're right. When you go into that, you're making a trade-off of, you know, I'll accept a narrow network. I'll agree that if they that they don't have to pay for those doctors, they'll only pay for these doctors, or they don't have to pay for that hospital. If you go into Medicare Advantage, you are overtly making that decision for many Medicare Advantage plans. With ACO Reach, if you've been assigned to one, it's a little bit more subtle because they can't say no. They can't restrict your network. You still retain access to the full traditional Medicare network. No matter if you're in a Reach or you're not in a Reach, if you want to see a physician who is in a REACH or not in the REACH, the REACH can't stop you from doing that. The REACH can't tell you you can't go to this hospital or that hospital. So it's, in a sense, uh, Medicare members retain all the protections that they have from traditional Medicare. The really clever power of this is that they are able to give your physician a financial penalty. If you go to see a, doc a doctor outside of the REACH, your physician can take a financial hit on that from the REACH plan. Or if your physician really manages to get you to stay entirely within the REACH, the REACH plan can give your physician a bonus for having done that. So all of a sudden, overnight, there's a conflict here. Now, you know, for many, you know, the physicians, they're thinking, well, this is because, you know, I, I like the docs that are in the REACH and I'm referring to them where they want. But we've never before had, in traditional Medicare, financial pressures on physicians to direct your care in, to any, any subset of traditional Medicare. So it's, it's tricky. 
And let me just ask one other point. From what I've heard, if you're put in a REACH plan, but when they get, get back to traditional Medicare, you have to change your primary care physician? Yeah, if you find that uh, you don't like some of the things the REACH is doing, or if you find that you have concerns about the structure, the model, or if things are happening that you're not happy about, you're getting, you know, for whatever reason, you decide that you don't really like the fact that Medicare has assigned you uh, to uh, to this new kind of for-profit middleman. If you decide you don't like it, you can call Medicare, 1-800-MEDICARE, and tell them to not share your data, but you can't get out. Uh, you can't get out. The only way you can get out is to change primary care physicians to a new primary care physician who's not in one of these outfits. That's not easy. You know, it's, you know, none of us want to do that. None of us want to change our doctor because of, of someone else telling us that we have to. Um, and that's, again, never happened. And traditionally, if you want to get out, if you want to get out, your only way out is to find a new doctor. And we think that's wrong. But not only to find a new doctor, to find a new doctor that's not in any REACH plan? Correct. I mean, you know, it doesn't do any good to change from one doctor to another. If you if the second doctor is, is in the same sort of uh, compromised position as the first one. And the real, the other problem with that is it's almost impossible for you to find out if you've been assigned to one or if your doctor is in one or if the doctor you're thinking about switching to is in one. It's, it's almost impossible to find that out. So I, I personally <laughs> tried to find out for myself by calling 1-800-MEDICARE and they, they had no idea what I was talking about. And I bounced up sort of two or three levels of of administrators and uh, or, and they were all to be really clear they were all really nice. I mean, it was I'd never called them before and I was really pretty impressed with their customer service. They were lovely, um, but they had no idea what I was even asking about. So you can't and they when I finally got to somebody they said yeah we don't have a we don't have any kind of database of whether doctors are in one of these or not. So you can't call them. Maybe they'll change that someday, but you can't call them. Um, call your doctor, you know, and ask your doctor if they're in one. If they're a solo or very, very small group primary care doc, they probably were involved in the decisions for the business of their office, and they can probably tell you. But most doctors are not in that kind of a setting these days. Most doctors these days are, are part, part of a large group. Uh, they may have, Their practice may have been bought by some other group or hospital system. And they, you know, of course, delegate most of these business functions to the business office of this large group. So frankly, if you ask your primary care doc, are you part of an ACL reach? There's a really good chance they won't know much about what you're talking about. And so what they'll do is tell you to call their business office, of course. And then, you know, the odds that the first person you talk to in their business office has any idea, you know, you'll have to also go through tiers and cascades of people to find somebody who can give you the answer. Um, which, you know, that's nice. You know, maybe you'll eventually get the answer, but, you know, it's it's, a, it's not easy is my point. And then if you just find out that you are and you want to find a new doctor, you got to start that all over again. <laughs> you got to start that process all over again. So it's not easy. Um, the point is once you're assigned, you're in there and, and you really have no pragmatic way of getting out. And I think you should be very concerned. You know, these things are new. They actually went live January 1st of 2023. So we don't yet have information. It'll be a year or two before we have information about 
um, you know, really sort of statistics about how often they alter the care that you should be taking. Medicare, of course, says that they'll prevent that, but Medicare says that they'll prevent that in Medicare Advantage, and that's been a failure uh, at preventing these problems. So, so you know, it, it'll take a year or two before we have data showing, um, you know, the, whether or not this is really a valid concern. In the meantime, though, you'll be, as a patient, you'll be exposed to it. So let me get this straight. As far as I know, most people haven't heard about it. Correct. And not that I've talked to a lot of doctors, but I've talked to doctors who don't know about it. And now you're telling me even some of the people in, who work at Medicare and CMS don't know about it. Right. The, the, the call center people uh, right. don't know about it. But uh, the people within the Medicare Innovation Center who created this, no, they, they, they know all about it. But who doesn't know about it, who should know about it, is Congress. Congress. I mean, you, you would think that uh, a, a project that's going to so radically transform the way financing within Medicare works, the way uh, care may be structured, um, you would think that, that such a radical transformation of the Medicare program uh, would require congressional engagement, approval. But not even awareness, not even notifying them really until recently. Um, a program, the predecessor of the program, which was called Direct Contracting, uh, really almost the same program, uh, started three, four years ago uh, under the Trump administration. And when we got wind of that in, in mid-2020, I guess it was, 2021, uh, we then decided to go to Congress. So we, our organization, Physicians for a National Health Program, went to Congress in November of 2021 to talk to them about this program. And I'm here to tell you that virtually almost none of them had ever heard of it, even though at that point, the predecessor program had been running for a couple of years. So, um, you know, we're, that's one of our missions is to make sure that Congress knows about it and uh, recognizes that um, the program for what it is in terms of the, the introduction of investment community into the middle of traditional Medicare, that's never a good idea, and that they make it their concerns about this known to Medicare Innovation Center. They could, you know, President Biden or Secretary of Health and Human Services Becerra uh, or the Medicare Innovation folks themselves, they could this afternoon, literally this afternoon, um, they could declare that the program is over. They could stop it. It didn't require an act of Congress to start it, and it does not require an act of Congress to stop it. It is operating at the pleasure and mercy of the administration and Congress. Well, you know, Congress is busy studying really important issues like Hunter Biden's laptop. All right. Now that I got my sarcasm out of the way, maybe. Oh, look, a balloon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. And I forgot my BB gun. Damn. Okay. So how will ACO reach help Medicare recipients? So to be clear, our concern about this is the introduction of profiteers into previously forbidden territory. But, you know, the healthcare system today has tremendous problems with it. And frankly, some of the things that ACO, that the REACH program is you know, in theory, addressing are things that I think, you know, are, are, are things worth, well worth addressing. Uh, my point is that we can address those things without introducing the investment community. You know, we do not need private equity and venture capital 
Wall Street writ large. We do not need them entering into this space. But uh, there are some things that we do agree you need to be done. You know, there's in theory, there's a part of the REACH program will will uh, pay these organizations more if they uh, deliver, if they organize care in underserved communities. Hooray. Yes. Let us, you know, if these are communities that have a hard time attracting medical delivery system, then golly gee. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's, let, let's do some things to try to, to, to move into there. But again, you don't need profiteers doing that. You need, you need Medicare doing that. You know, there's in theory, uh, this is going to pay more for coordinated care, you know, you know, for having, you know, have the organization be able to coordinate uh, your healthcare. In reality, that's exactly what they said the HMOs were going to do back, you know, when that started and even through today, they say they're coordinating your care. And what we know they're actually doing and what the REACH model does is they coordinate the payments, they coordinate the money, and mm-hmm. they, they retain a portion of that for themselves when they do that coordinating. And it's, you know, the, it doesn't, it's not a design, it's not a system that you need to introduce to do care coordination. If you want to do more care coordination, if you want Medicare to do more care coordination, well, then you know, pay for that, you know, or establish care coordination outfits like they've done in some states and some regions. You don't, you don't need to introduce the investment community. You don't need to have somebody trying to make a, make, you know, make a return on investment to the, to, to their Wall Street investors in order to accomplish these things that are, frankly, things, many of which we think are good ideas, but not in this way. So it's obvious when you look at what's going on in our healthcare system, that the for-profit system isn't working. There's been studies that estimate that 76,000 people die because of our healthcare system unnecessarily. You know, we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. I think somewhere a little over just 40% of the population isn't insured or is underinsured, or at least the adult population up to 65. And when you look at having a profit motivation in healthcare, it just doesn't work. So what is the logic of introducing profiteers to any part of our healthcare system and thinking that it'll make it better? I do not understand that. Yeah, I, I first to validate you, I agree with you completely that you know we spend twice as much as the other typical countries. We don't get the value out of the system where your lives are cut short. So you're, you're right. So the, the theory here is that if you give the healthcare dollar to, uh, to the investors, um, that they will make money by having you be healthier, cost less to take care of. If they can make, they need to make you cost less to take care of, and then they can make money. So the theory is they can make you cost less to take care of. By making you healthier, by coordinating your care, by uh, ending, you know, duplicative services, by, you know, that, that they can coordinate your care and improve your health and thereby make you healthier and thereby lower the cost of, of, of delivering healthcare to you. And uh, if you put them in the middle like that, then they can save a piece of the savings and they're motivated to do all these things. So that sounds lovely, actually. The idea that, you know, an intermediary can make more money by keeping you healthy than by, you know, by letting you get sick. That's one of the reasons I went to medical school. That's the, that's the notion of the HMO Act in 1973. That is the value proposition from the HMO Act in 1973. And I thought that was a splendid idea, you know, put somebody in there who can make more money by keeping me healthier. But 
It's 50 years later now. And what we have learned over and over and over again is that the way you make money in that system as the intermediary is by getting in the way of healthcare. It's it's really expensive to improve your health, you know, and, and those expenses almost balance off. It's hard to make money by making the population healthier. And it takes decades for that kind of a campaign to really pay off. And by that point, the insurance company has already made their money. And it's hard to make money by the value proposition of the ACO reach of coordinating care and improving health or the HMO industry or Medicare Advantage. That's a hard, that's not how you make money. The way you make money in this sort of environment is by getting in the way of healthcare and tricking Medicare to pay you more for the same person. That's the way you make money in this. Getting in the way of healthcare, Medicare Advantage simply can say no. You know, they can simply say no. And ACO reach can't do that exactly but they can nudge you. You know, the investment community is investing heavily in these REIT outfits because they think they have effective tools at nudging you towards less expensive or no, or delaying your care. The only reason they're investing as heavily in this stuff is because they're confident that they have the ability to direct you either away from care or to delay your care. They know they're not going to make their money by making you healthier. That's just not a winning um, financial investment uh, for a short-term return, like you know, venture capital and private equity likes to do. So there is a there is a theory, there is a model, uh, and and I agree that we need to do things obviously to improve the health outcomes of the system. We need to you know have much more population health. We need to do much more preventive medicine. We need to do all sorts of things. We don't need to put venture capital in the middle of that. You know, that's not their lookout. If you think the investment community is getting invested because they want to improve your health, I've got a bridge right over here to sell you. Um, you know, I, I heard uh, Dr. Jim Kahn speak to this uh, um, a few days ago, and, and he said it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, ACL reach is a wolf in sheep's clothing, he said. And then uh, Dr. Susan Rogers followed that up and said, yeah, and the wolf changes clothes all the time. And that's what I submit to you is exactly what ACO reaches new clothing for the old wolf of managed care HMOs. And we need to not let this take over Medicare. So basically, my point is correct. It doesn't make sense. We're trying things that have not worked before. And not once or twice. They haven't worked for 50 years. Exactly. <laughs> and to say that, on, oh, wait, on the 51st year of this approach, now we'll get it. No, we're not going to get it right. And they know we're not. And they know we don't remember all this stuff. So they're just lurching back into the abyss with us. This reminds me of the old saying, insanity is doing things the same way and expecting a different result. Based on what you're saying, it's just a horrible idea. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, I love the idealism of let's, let's align the interests, but... I'm sorry, we've got, you know, mountains and mountains of data that shows that this doesn't work. <laughs> this doesn't work. And it's dangerous and deadly and is going to further accelerate the bankruptcy of Medicare. Yes, it doesn't work. So we try all these experiments that are variation of things that haven't worked instead of doing what we know has worked in other countries. And we have real world examples of it's working. And that's obviously single payer, Medicare for all. You cannot align people getting health care with profit because the way they make more profit is by denying care. Exactly. 
give you an example of, of that. So I told you that part of why I went to med school was because I liked the idea of improving health outcomes. And so I work within the managed care environment for frankly, most of my career. And But a series of experiences accumulated that made me go, oh, this really is a terrible idea. So one of those was uh, at a point when I had sort of profit and loss responsibility for I think about 150,000 uh, members in a, a managed care group in an HMO. And we were doing great, right? You know, we made, you know, we were making money, you know, it was, it was, you know, everybody got a vaccination that they, that they wanted and needed, you know, all the mammograms and pap smears and colonoscopies, we were doing, you know, patient satisfaction was great. They were, it was just like, you know, prove my point. And then one guy comes in with, with a, a very expensive illness. And it was so expensive that it would have bankrupted the part of the organization that he had come into. And so I've got profit and loss responsibility in addition to practicing there. I've got profit and I'm looking at this one guy and I'm thinking, you know, we should make him not like us. Seriously, a physician in charge of a, of a group is thinking, I didn't act on it, but I'm thinking I should make this patient not like us. So, you know, we should, you know, we should put him on hold when he calls more often. We should not call him with his test results. We should make him wait for his visit when he comes into the office. There was a whole cascade of things I thought we should we could start doing, and it would make him kind of scratch his head and go, you know, that used to be a great place to go, but, you know, I don't know what happened to him, but I'm going to go find another doctor. And maybe he'd complain to me and say, you know, what's wrong with this place? And I'd say, well, you know, you don't like it, get the hell out of here. I mean, I, win, 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 you know. Um, we didn't do any of those things, <laughs> but it's haunted me for a long time that I thought about doing those things. You know, that, and that's the financial incentives in, a, in managed care. That's the financial incentives in an HMO. That's the financial incentives in Medicare Advantage. And I'm here to tell you, those are the exact same financial incentives on people working within a reach. You know, probably not act on it most of the time, but the fact that we're putting, you know, the medical community into the middle of this, that's just wrong. It's going to be really destructive. We should not let this happen. Well, I would agree with that. So what are the financial incentives, both for the organization, the corporations, and the financial incentives for the doctors in the REACH program? I think that's really important. I think that's a big part of, of our concerns with this program. So for the, for the organization, um, they get paid, prepaid on a monthly basis from Medicare certain dollar amount for every person that's assigned to their outfit. So they get to keep that money until they have to pay the docs. <laughs> um, and so they get sort of a free loan, a float that they get. Um, they also have um, games to a certain degree that they can do to make it look like the patients that they've gotten assigned are sick enough to warrant extra payments from Medicare. So so they have an incentive to delay paying it out. They have an incentive to connive their way into getting paid more from Medicare for the for each of these people. And then thirdly, of course, they have an incentive to delay or deny. They can't really deny your care. They're prevented from denying your care, but they have tricks to delay or get in the way of your health care. So they want to they want to minimize how much care you get and they want to direct where it goes, even though they have limited tools, but they want to do those. So that's their three things, you know, get more money per person, uh, delay how, how soon they have to pay because they do get a return on the investment that they're sitting on that capital. And then thirdly, you know, delay or get in the way of, 
of healthcare. So that's sort of the financial incentives. And and frankly, the, the amount that they can retain from all of that is 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 huge. So they're paid to a benchmark that Medicare determines. There's issues with that, but they're paid to a benchmark that Medicare determines. And then if they work it out so that you don't need that much care, because either you weren't actually that sick to begin with, so they got overpaid, or because they delayed or got in the way of care or whatever, if they work it out that you don't cost as much as the benchmark, um, Medicare can keep the first, I think, two and a half percent of what they don't spend. But the really most of the first 25% of what they don't spend, they can keep. They can keep virtually 100%, every penny, of the first 25% that they don't spend on your health care. So if Medicare gives them, let's say, $100 to take care of you this week or whatever, um, and they only spend $75 on your actual health care, paying doctors and hospitals and such, if they only spend 75 of the $100, they get to keep virtually all of that $25 that they didn't spend. And if they spend even less than 75, there's a, there's a sort of a sliding scale where they can keep a percentage of that too. So these outfits are allowed to retain the first 25% of what they don't spend on your healthcare and even more beyond that. So that's why Wall Street is interested in this because it's a you know huge opportunity for them to pilfer you know, our precious public coffers. Coffers is an interesting word to use in healthcare, but they, 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 they do get to retain that. So that's how, that's how they can make their money. And then an individual physician or a medical group, for a, for a physician or a medical group to join uh, a REACH, they have to sign a contract that agrees for Medicare to pay them less than what Medicare would have paid them were they not in the REACH. They have to assign a contract that said the, the terms of the contract are anywhere from literally one to 99% less, no, one to 100% less than what Medicare would have paid them if they weren't in the reach. And those dollars that Medicare doesn't pay them then go to the reach instead of to the, to the doctor. And then the reach has a contract back with that doctor about how much of that diverted money the reach pays the doctor. So that's proprietary. We don't have any visibility. Nobody, you know, outside of that group, that medical group, has any visibility into how much of that diverted money the reach pays back to the primary care doctor. But if the doctor wants to stay whole, and here we're dealing with, you know, loss aversion, right? Because I'm I've accepted being paid less. I don't want to be paid less, but I'm believe I can recapture that by paying attention to what the reach wants me to do. And the way I can get the REACH to keep me whole or to pay me more than whole is for the REACH to be persuaded that my patients are the ones they want and that I'm the practice that they want, that my patients are staying within the REACH network, that my patients are the ones that are, that are not using much care. And we've already seen discussions at uh, MedPAC, which is the, the outfit that guides Medicare. It's Medicare's advisement council. We've seen discussions at MedPAC of the expense of DACs being threatened with being kicked out of their reach because they're too expensive. Well, the expensive docs are, in some cases, not necessarily, it shouldn't be that expensive, but a lot of them are the ones taking care of the sickest people. So, you know, the, 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 the incentives are upside down here. The incentives are upside down. The way you can, the way as a physician you can stay whole is by ma making the reach happy. Not by making their patients happy, but by making the reach happy. You know, most of us are good, hardworking people who want to keep our patients really, really happy and well taken care of. But 
we shouldn't be put in a position like I was with that expensive patient that I thought about not that I thought about, well, gee, you know, <laughs> pretty expensive. And if I didn't have him in my practice, you know, we would be making more money. I shouldn't be in that position. And that's exactly the position that the REIT has to put physicians into if they want to make money. And they do. Based on what you said, I can't believe that anybody, I'm sorry, I just have to use this term, but I can't believe that anybody would be so stupid as to think this would work. So let me be clear. There are some people for whom I have profoundly deep respect who do think it would work and who are excited about it. Um, and one just named to toss a name out, and he is like the least stupid person in the universe, is a physician named Don Berwick. He's, you know, he, he's, oh. you know, if, you're, if you're in healthcare policy, he's like, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's a wonderful... And and he he believes, as do others, that this notion that maybe maybe corporations shouldn't be involved like they are, but that this notion of paying a group to keep you healthy and let you spend the money in the way that keeps you healthy, that that's a good idea. Um, so it you know it it is attractive if you think systems management can work. It is attractive to think, let's give them a bucket of money and they can make you healthier. You know that'll 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 be the way they make money. The problem with that ideology of let's do this. The problem is. There's 50 years of data showing that the other financial driver works more. There's 50 years of data showing that the way to make money in this model is by not letting you get healthcare, by finding ways to get in the way, you know, by confusing things, by confounding it. You know, so I have tremendous admiration for a small portion of the people that are really advocate for it. But then there's others who are, of course, advocating for it because they're on the side of, you know, well, look here, it's a gravy train. Let's go into town. Well, one of the problems I have with it, I mean, even if you're, you know, healthy, fit, exercise every day, you can still get cancer. You can still get some disease that's very expensive to treat. And so it just seems like that you're going to be penalizing people, certainly based, as you put it, on the 50 years of experience that we have that people will be penalized for getting cancer, for getting Alzheimer's, for getting things that they have absolutely no control over to some degree. That's right. When that happens to us and it happens to, you know, we're, nobody's getting out alive, <laughs> it happens to all of us. Uh, when that happens, you suddenly shift from being an attractive moneymaker for the outfit you know, with a prepaid set of dollars flowing in behind you because that's the way it works, you suddenly shift from being an attractive moneymaker for the outfit into being a cost center. You're suddenly a liability. You're suddenly become the person that, you know, some jerk like I was, you know, thinking, well, here's how we make them not so happy about, about it. You know, we didn't act on it. But to be clear, some of the reaches are better and some of them are, are worse. Problem is we have no way of telling them apart. And certainly as a as a patient, you have no way of telling them apart. And the only way you'll know is when you get really sick and you start getting confusing or, you know, advice that you're not sure you can trust anymore. And that's really one of the issues, isn't it? One of the issues is that you're not, you can no longer as confidently trust that the advice you're getting is the advice that's in your best interests rather than in the reach's biggest profit interests. It's designed, it's fundamentally structured 
to put profit over care, to put cost before care. And that's wrong. And that's new for Medicare. Traditional Medicare has never had that problem. You know, one of the things about doing this podcast is I think I know about our healthcare system and I keep thinking, I'm not going to learn anything that's even worse about our healthcare system. And I hate to say it, but after talking to you, reach is even worse than I thought. So what can be done to prevent this? Well, there's there's a lot that can be done. And we have information suggesting that what we've thought would be effective at slowing this down or stopping it is effective. So there's a lot of action steps we can take. And we actually now know that those action steps are worth taking, that they're, they're working. So what can you do? First thing is to sort of learn about it. You know, you got to, you know, you can't just sort of, you know, rely on, you know, hearing, you know, one bozo like me blathering on for, uh, for an hour. Um, you can't rely on that. You know, you have to, you have to do your research. And I would say one of the places where the information is really well collected uh, is at a website called protectmedicare.net. So go to protectmedicare.net. And uh, there's a there's a wealth of more information. It happens that at that same website, there's also a wealth of action steps you can you can easily engage in. So first, read and learn more, and you know watch maybe some of the other videos and things that that it will make you understand it better. It's complicated, I get that. So first, you know go there to read, but then secondly, go there to take action. What actions can you take? Well, there's a petition you can sign uh, to Congress saying we don't like this. Please stop this. There's a, there's a, a petition in your organization if you're part of you know a church group or a union or what have you you know there's a there are there's a petition that organizations uh, can sign. There's scripts for how to call people. Call your member of Congress. I mean that sounds kind of like you know really call Congress. Yes, yes. Uh, call your member of Congress and tell them if you're comfortable do it. Do what you're comfortable you know where your skills feel like they fit. So you know if you if you're comfortable writing an op-ed or a letter to the editor. Uh, there's um, there are resources and skeletons and st- drafts um, on protectmedicare.net that can give you ideas of how to start one. You know, write your own, but at least that'll give you you know ways to start it and, and give you some messages you might want to consider including in some information. So so do those kinds of things. I say we're optimistic that these tools that these actions work because we're seeing that in 2023 we've kind of slowed down the growth of this program. So. We were worried that there were going to be many, many millions in this program in 2023. And we just heard a few days ago that actually there's 2.1 million, which is still a lot of people, but it's not the 10 or 20 million that we were worried was coming down the road. And the head of the Innovation Center clearly said in at least two, I think three now public settings, that part of why they're keeping the limit, the size down to, to the size it is, 2 million instead of potentially much bigger, is because of all the outcry against it. So there are 132 of these REACH entities in 2023, and we were worried that there were going to be hundreds and that we didn't know how many would be next year. And um, Medicare has announced that because of the outcry, frankly, um, that uh, they rejected the applications for more than half of the groups that wanted to become one of these entities. That's but they've never rejected anywhere near that number. Um, they said that's the biggest biggest percentage of rejections they've ever made. 
which number one tells you that a lot of bad actors were coming into it that should mm-hmm. be rejected. But number two, it tells you that Medicare is realizing that they they can't let that go on unfettered. So it's limited to, there's 132 of these in January of 2023 organizations, and they've announced that that's all there's going to be, that uh, we were worried that there would be another application round with more of these outfits coming to brew next year and the year after. And they've said, no, we're closing the applications. We're not going to have any more applications. The application process is closed and it's not going to reopen. And the program is going to end in 2026. And all of that that I just said, these are, to my way of thinking, huge victories and evidence of the impact of raising your voice, (laughs) raising your voice, you know, write to Congress, you know, call Congress, call your mem- call your mem- call your representative, call your senator, write the op-ed, you know, sign the petitions, organize meetings in your in your in your community, in your house. You know, there are videos you can play to to your friends and neighbors, to your church group. Doing this work, we know is altering it. And that's really important, number one, because this program is so dreadful. But number two, because if Medicare wants to come out with the next iteration about this, if they think, okay, we're slowing this program down, but <laughs> we're going to quietly make something worse, they're going to have to think twice about that. They're going to have to think twice about that because they, by raising all of this discussion in public, we're making it known that these kinds of programs come at a tremendous political cost. If you want to do something to hurt our Medicare, there's going to be a tremendous political cost for that. And you better think long and hard before you try to mess with our Medicare. And, you know, we need that because if we want to get to Medicare for all, you know, the theme of your podcast, well, we need Medicare. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we could start a new system, but, you know, we have Medicare. Let's protect it. Let's go to protectmedicare.net. I just want to add, I've actually known some aides to member of Congress, and they said that calling can be important. They pay attention to phone calls. So for anybody who wants to do perhaps the quickest and maybe even the easiest, phone calls can be very effective and they pay attention. They keep track of who calls and what they say on the issues. You know, it's weird when you call there because um, sometimes you actually like get somebody that you have a conversation with. uh, And so that's always lovely. But more often than not, you get a voicemail system. And so you feel like, well, what's the point of this? You know, not even, you know, there's a big point. It's exactly what you just said, Joe. That um, they, you know, you leave your message and you tell them, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm one of your constituents, you know, I live in this zip code or whatever, you know, you know, I'm one, you know, and I'm paying, I want you to know I'm paying attention and I need your help because this uh, ACO REACH program that uh, Medicare is starting up, I hate it. I don't want you to mess with my Medicare like that. Leave it alone. We love, you know, we, I love my good old fashioned traditional Medicare. I love that. I'm relying on it. I paid into it for most of my working life. I do not want you destroying it. You know, leave those kinds of messages, you know, starting with I'm a constituent, if you are, you know, leave those kinds of messages. And yeah, calling Congress, you know, the best thing is meeting with Congress, you know, so, and you can't, you know, like it's, but you can meet with your representative, you know, your representative or senator is occasionally in your district or set up a group, you know, that don't tell them, you know, I've got a group of 10 of us, we want to meet with you or go to a town hall. So meet with them in person if you can, that's the heavier lift. Call them up and just, you know, three o'clock in the morning tonight when you're thinking about this conversation, it's got you so wild that you can't sleep, you know, 
find your phone number. It's easy to find, you know, go online, what's the phone number and leave them a voicemail. They won't be there, but leave them a voicemail. And that is effective. Or, you know, the thing that actually I've heard is the most effective um, is literally handwriting a letter, <laughs> a literal handwritten, not a computer printed, not a fact, a literal handwritten letter, because it's so uncommon these days. When they see somebody took the time to use an actual pen and script out something in their own, it's got emotional connection to it. So a handwritten letter, but you know, nobody has even know how to write anymore. <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, type it out a letter, you know, or an email, you know, email is less effective because those are, you know, easily flipped through, um, you know, or, you know, certainly sending a blast email uh, is a limited value, uh, some value. So, you know, basically every road in gets, moves the ball forward. You're not going to score a touchdown every time you get the ball, but you do want to go in the right direction down the field. Don't not play because you're not going to get a touchdown on that particular field. Keep playing. I don't know. We're recording this right before Super Bowl Sunday. It'll be heard afterwards. But So in one of the things I have found, if you like your member of Congress, start out with that because they don't get many compliments. It's often people who don't like what they're doing. But I remember I called an aide and said, I really like the job he's doing. And he was just kind of flabbergasted that somebody would say that. So I think it would help if you do like the job your member of Congress is doing is let him know you like it. You have supported him and say, hey, and I really would like it. You really need to stop this program. I think if you're going to call, that would even be more effective. I agree with you about that. And I would, I would broaden it to say, find something that your member of Congress did that you can agree with. And so I remember one, one uh, U.S. representative that I called, and I disagreed with him on really almost everything. But I did find there was one line in one bill that he authored. He was the key sponsor of. There was a one line that I thought was, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. So I was able to start the conversation with, you know, when you passed that such and such bill, I noticed that you wrote this in it. That was terrific. You know, and then, oh, you like that? <laughs> you know, and, and then, you know, but... I didn't say, but, you know, but everything else you've been doing is crazy, man. You know, I didn't say that, but, you know, start, you're right. You're right, Joe. It's great if you can start the dialogue with something, something favorable. And, you know, even, even the most polarized of us amongst us, there's often something, you know, something. Well, as I said, um, it's been one of those conversations where, oh, it's even worse than I thought. But I'd like to know, before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? I would say it's worth emphasizing to be of good cheer. That is as dreadful as this is, um, we have, I believe, evidence that community advocacy work, that raising your voice is effective. We can't let up. We can't stop because, you know, they're just going to come back. The wolf will change their clothing again. So, you know, we have to be on wolf patrol all the time. Help us, you know, put an end to this particular one. Help us keep on the fight. So I, I said the most important thing I would say is be of good cheer and keep, you know, keep putting one foot in front of the next because it, it's the only way to go forward. It works. Go to protectmedicare.net to get more information and more action steps. Well, I will definitely put a link to medicare.net in the description for this podcast. Dr. Weisbart, as always, you were incredibly informative and incredibly clear. Thank you for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much. I really enjoy what you've been doing here. 
You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.